Again, John chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, <clears throat> the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about what its works are, that his works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Well, thank you very much for reading for us, Sean. Um, keep that scripture passage open. We're going to be referring to it. Um, somebody has asked me in the past, why is, it, um, why is it that we always print all of the words to the songs in the bulletin? Well, it is for the Sunday on which the lamp burns out on the projector. So, Martha, thank you for your hard work in uh, helping keep Sunday happening today. Um, so, uh, but there is space in there for notes as well on page four. Um, you, you'll find some questions to discuss after it as well. But um, let, me, uh, let me turn to the Lord and ask for his help as we uh, consider John 7 together. Let's pray. Um, Father God, thank you so much for uh, your grace and for your kindness. Um, thank you for uh, the, the sermon that you've already preached to us today in baptism, the way that you signify to us the, the cleansing that we experience through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, as we consider your word, um, speak to us again, um, make yourself clear to us, uh, help us understand ourselves, and help us understand you. And we pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite classes in school was science, especially physics, but I also enjoyed chemistry. Uh, what I enjoyed more than anything were the experiments, and one particular experiment, experiment uh, sticks out. Uh, the teacher gave us a flask of some clear liquid, and then we were also given a little dropper bottle as well. And what we had to do is add a few drops of uh, that dropper into the flask and, and give it a little swirl. And as you did that, uh, what happened was powder began to form in the bottom. And what that illustrated was precipitation, for those of you who are interested. Um, there was a chemical dissolved in that original liquid, uh, but uh, that chemical, of course, started out invisible. It was hidden uh, within the liquid. But when you added the other liquid, a reaction took place, and that chemical began to fall out. It was there all along, but you couldn't see it. Now, we don't uh, need to go into the science of why that happens. Maybe one of the kids can tell us. But it is something like that that we find in John chapter 7. Once again, this chapter centers on one of the Jewish feasts. The previous chapter took place during the Passover. This event happens during the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the things you'll notice as you read the chapter is this. There is, there is a progression in the ministry of Jesus Christ throughout the chapter. It starts out very private. But as you work through the chapter, it becomes more and more public and prominent. 
Uh, At first, Jesus doesn't go up to the feast at all. And then we read that he goes up privately. Uh, Then we find him teaching in the temple. And then literally, uh, we find him shouting out in the streets. And in one sense, Jesus' ministry in this chapter is like those drops in the science experiment. Uh, As his ministry becomes more and more public, as he adds more and more drops to the flask, uh, we start to see something begin to fall out and to begin to be revealed. Uh, Something hidden starts to emerge. Uh, Something that was there all, all along but was invisible until it is exposed more clearly. In fact, two things become clear. The first is quite shocking uh, because what we learn is that the world hates God. The world hates God. Uh, That hatred becomes more and more pronounced as the chapter continues. Uh, But the second thing we see is perhaps even more shocking and surprising than that. Uh, The world's hatred toward God becomes clear, yes, but, but quite amazingly what also becomes clear is God's love for a world that hates him. The world hates God, but God loves the world that hates him. That's really what John chapter 7 is really all about. And now we're going to be spending a few weeks in this chapter. And so I should say, unfortunately, we're really going to be looking at the bad news first. The world hates God. That's what really our theme is today. In fact, maybe you looked down at the bulletin and thought, this is going to be an interesting one. I mean, the title of this sermon is Hating Jesus. But look down with me at verse 6, if you don't believe me. Uh, This is what Jesus Christ himself teaches. Uh, Speaking to his unbelieving brothers, Jesus says this. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Uh, Then look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Uh, The world hates me. That's what Jesus Christ says. Uh, and listen, we should say, shouldn't we, if you follow Jesus, that has very, very clear implications for you, doesn't it? If the world feels this way about Jesus, well, how does it feel about you? Uh, but before we ask that, we really need to ask, how can Jesus make this claim? I mean, the world hates Jesus Christ. I mean, hate is a very big word, isn't it? Are we saying that people wake up in the morning seething with rage, uh, rage that's directed toward Jesus? Well, maybe some people are, but usually that's not the case, is it? Uh, People have all kinds of different attitudes to Christ and to Christianity. Uh, But what this chapter reveals is this. In each, hatred really lies behind the surface. Uh, This is what we see in John chapter 7. In verses 1 through 13, it's like hate is dissolved in the flask. It's soon going to fall out as the chapter continues. But at this point, it's also beginning to show in, in more subtle ways. Uh, And this really is how the passage helps. It it shows us the the different forms that hatred can take. Uh, And so as strange as it sounds, what I want to do today is think about four ways in which people hate Jesus Christ. Or or rather, four different ways in which hatred towards Christ can manifest itself, even in the world today. Uh, Here we see four different groups. Uh, Firstly, there are the Jewish leaders who want to destroy Christ. Uh, Secondly, there are Jesus' brothers who simply dismiss him. Uh, Thirdly, amid these crowds, there are people who consider Jesus to be a good man. Uh, Now, that doesn't sound like hatred, does it, until we realize that what they're doing is domesticating the Lord Jesus. Uh, Fourthly and finally, we close with people denigrating Christ. They don't want to outright destroy him, but they want to undermine his reputation. Uh, People seek to destroy Christ. People dismiss Christ. People domesticate Christ. 
people denigrate Christ. Uh, and it turns out that even today, hatred toward Christ is actually expressed in, in the same four ways. And so let's walk through them one at a time. Uh, I mean, the first one is perhaps the most obvious. Uh, here we see people seek to destroy Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Uh, verse 1 tells us this. Um, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, no matter your emotional intelligence, here is something that I think most of us could spot. Uh, when someone is trying to kill you, it may be a subtle hint that they don't really like you. Uh, but this has been the effect of Jesus' ministry so far. Uh, the Jewish leaders have already seen enough. Uh, Jesus has broken the Sabbath. Jesus has been speaking blasphemous things. What more do they need? I mean, in the eyes of the law, he's already earned a death sentence. Now, I feel I should provide a brief aside here, especially with what is happening in the world. Uh, John says it is the Jews who sought to destroy Jesus Christ. And there is a problem here, isn't there? Uh, the problem is this might sound anti-Semitic to us. And so we need to be clear, the Bible never, ever advocates anti-Semitism. Uh, ethnically, John himself, who wrote this, was a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Uh, the point isn't to single out the Jews as especially evil, as if they are responsible for killing Jesus. Uh, no, crucifying Christ was really uh, very much a team sport. Uh, in fact, uh, the very point that we're making here is that the world, the world, the whole world hates Christ. The whole world, Jews and Gentiles, conspired to crucify Christ. Uh, and at the same time, we should be shocked by this, shouldn't we? Because the word, the Jews here, is a word that's used by John to describe the leaders, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And we have to say, of all people, they should have known better than this. Firstly, they should have known that murder was wrong. It made God's top ten list. And they should have read the prophecies. They, above all, should have recognized Jesus Christ. But instead of honor him, what do they do? They, well, they hate him, perhaps more than anyone else. They want to get rid of him. They want him to be gone. And so it is with, with many people today. Some people hate Christ in, in a very explicit way. I mean, there's nothing they want more than to rid the world of Christianity. I think of the writings of Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens. I mean, they've fallen out of vogue recently. Uh, at one point, uh, they were referred to as the new atheists. And we have to say this, this new atheism was a little bit fiercer than the kind of atheism that came before. The new atheist isn't content simply to question religion. Uh, no, there is a desire, ultimately, to eradicate religion completely. Uh, Hitchens uh, wrote that best-selling book, God is Not Great, uh, the subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. Uh, there are so many great quotes from that book, but uh, here is uh, Hitchens waxing lyrical about the Bible. Uh, this is what he says. The Bible may indeed does contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. I wonder how many people share that opinion of the Bible. Uh, for some people, the world would be better off without Christ. And that's not very far away from wanting to kill him, is it? It would have been better if Jesus had never been born. I mean, for them, the influence of Jesus and his followers is, is nothing but repression and the religious justification of evil. And in some parts of the world, that hatred is very strong and is very explicit. We'll think about that next week. 
uh, because many people hate Jesus Christ. This is the official policy of many governments to seek to exterminate Christians. And thankfully, we should say this view is not so common. And yet there are many people who think society would be better off without Christian influence. And so many people seek to destroy Jesus Christ. This is the first way that hatred is seen. But the second way is is much more subtle. In verses 2 through 5, we find another way that hatred expresses itself. That is, in those who seek to dismiss Jesus. Some people try to destroy Christ, but some people are content to dismiss him. I mean, that's what Jesus' own brothers do. Take a look down at verse 2 with me. Now the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. And so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And now the Feast of Booths is something we'll talk more about next time. But basically, uh, people all came to Jerusalem and, and lived in tents. It was kind of a religious camping trip, celebrating God's provision for them during 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, and Jesus' brothers see this, perhaps, as, as Jesus' big chance. This is an opportunity, they think. This is a perfect place for Jesus to promote his ministry. Perhaps they know what happened last time. I mean, if you were here last time, you'll know that Passover had been a big fail. Remember, the crowds had walked away mad at what Jesus said, and and Jesus even managed to lose some of his own disciples. And so they want to give Jesus some PR advice. But what we see is more than that, I think. We have to ask ourselves, do these words read like the words of Jesus' own campaign team, or do they read more like the jeers of Jesus' opposition? I mean, I actually think it's the latter. These are the words of the opponents of Jesus Christ. In fact, in case you don't believe me, look at the author's own interpretation there in verse 5. Why did they say this? Well, verse 5 tells us, for not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. In fact, it's in their response that, uh, it's uh, in, in response to their words that Jesus makes this incredible claim, isn't it? It's in response to their words that Jesus tells us, while the world hates him. And in context, we have to say that claim implicates his own brothers. And so we should see these words as carrying, I think, more of a dismissive tone. These are Jesus' younger brothers mocking him and his ministry. Oh, they say, so you are God? You've come down from heaven? You believe yourself to be some sort of worldwide savior? Why don't you go and and wow the crowds in Jerusalem with your mighty works? Uh, Subtext being, well, maybe you're worried that all of your followers will leave you like they did last time. Uh, This is how they show their hatred towards Christ. What I believe they show here really is a dismissive attitude. Uh, And it's easy to miss how painful this must have been. uh, To be hated and dismissed by members of your own family. Uh, Sadly, I know that some of you have experienced this yourself. Uh, Maybe it even came as a result of your commitment to follow the Lord Jesus. Uh, Thankfully, I have to say, that was not my experience. Uh, I should be careful. My parents sometimes tune in and watch online, so I should be careful what I say here. But but when I first became a Christian, I do think my parents were a little bit worried. They were a bit worried about me. I think they were worried that I had joined a cult or something like that. And, And being honest, looking back, the church I went to was actually a little bit weird. It isn't necessarily uh, the kind of church I would suggest that that Carissa or Felicity go to when they grow up. Uh, But my parents' response was one of concern, and it was hardly one of being dismissive. 
And if you're a young Christian, maybe your parents are concerned about your newfound faith. You might interpret that as persecution, but it it might simply be because they love you. Uh, But at the same time, I know for sure, uh, for some of you, it is more than that. Uh, Following Christ has meant facing rejection. Rejection from the people from whom you should experience love. And how encouraging to know that Jesus Christ himself has first-hand experience of this. As your great high priest, he came and experienced your pain. Uh, And yet the point I'm making simply is this. Uh, This is just another way in which hatred towards Christ comes to the fore. It's not just when people actively seek to destroy Jesus Christ. No hatred manifests itself in this mocking and dismissive attitude toward Jesus. Uh, And when we realize that, we probably notice, actually, uh, hatred is a lot more common than it seems. Uh, think about what the brothers do uh, for Jesus. They, they believe Jesus has a PR problem, don't they? And, and how many people in the world today feel the same way about Christians? Uh, how many unbelievers are there who are full of good advice for followers of Christ? I mean, if only you did this, if only you did that, if only you toned down this certain doctrine, if only you spoke a bit more about racism, if only Christians became more like us, then, then Christians, well, maybe more people would become Christians. Do they say that because they support the cause? Do they say that because they want people to follow Christ? Of course not. Like, the, like Jesus' brothers here, they say that because they don't believe in Jesus. And what underlies this is generally the fact that people are dismissive of Jesus Christ. Something else, some other thing is far, far more important. And behind that, according to Jesus, lies a hatred. A hatred towards God, a hatred towards him. In fact, it turns out that the root of dismissing Christ is actually the very same as wanting to kill him. Uh, But that brings us to the third point. If people express hatred towards Christ by seeking to destroy him or by dismissing him, thirdly, we see it expressed in even more surprising ways. We see it when people domesticate him. Uh, People show their hatred for Christ by domesticating Christ. Uh, By which I mean they reduce him. They reduce his claims. They tone down anything radical or anything threatening about his teaching. Uh, For example, Jesus claims to be God. Uh, I mean, he tells us this. He tells us that if we want to follow him, we have to surrender everything. Uh, And Jesus claimed as God to be the savior of the world. More specifically, uh, the only hope of the world is his death. Jesus teaches that salvation only comes in one way, through his own wrath-bearing sacrifice. Jesus came to take God's punishment on our behalf, uh, to bear the punishment of sinners. And as I mentioned last time, this presents a problem for many people. I mean, these are really the very two biggest barriers to the faith. Jesus teaching about his divinity uh, and Jesus teaching about his sacrificial death for sinners. This is precisely what drove the crowds away in chapter 6. Uh, But listen, we get another response in chapter 7. Here we find the crowds whispering about Jesus Christ. I mean, I kind of love this. They're muttering, it says. Look at verse 12 with me. During the feast in Jerusalem, there was much muttering about him among the people. I mean, I love that. Don't you wish people were busy muttering about Jesus Christ? But look at what they say there in verse 12. But while some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And then we get this point in verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews who were trying to kill him, don't forget, no one spoke openly about him. I mean, we could really see that as a direct parallel today, can we? The crowds are divided, though. But look at what the first group say. They say, he is 
a good man. He is a good man. I mean, it, it seems complimentary, doesn't it? Uh, how can we claim that someone who says that Jesus is a good man actually hates the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, we have to ask, though, don't we, what good man claims to be good? What good man claims that the only hope of the world is his own brutal execution? The only way to say this about Jesus is really to deny what Jesus says about himself. It is to reject his very clearest teachings. It is to downplay his words, or else it is to ignore them. It is to appear to accept Jesus, yes, but to do so only on our own terms. It is to refuse to let Jesus Christ speak for himself. Instead of allowing ourselves to be confronted by his clear claims, instead what we do is just water them down. And this is what I mean by domesticating Jesus Christ. I mean reducing him, making Jesus Christ a lot more palatable. I mean, Jesus is a good man. I mean, who would object to that? And yet, far from a compliment, it really turns Jesus into a pet. It turns Jesus into just, just some little puppy. Here, Jesus, heal. Jesus, sit. And to claim to respect Jesus Christ as a good man or as a good moral teacher is really just a thin veneer of Christianity. And below that veneer is really a hatred towards Jesus Christ. Uh, to believe that about Jesus Christ is ultimately to reject him. And the final group we see also reject Christ, but they really do it outright. Uh, we've seen those who seek to destroy Christ. We've seen those who dismiss Christ. We've seen those who domesticate, domesticate Christ. But fourthly and finally, we find those who denigrate Christ. They denigrate Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean they speak against him. Now look at what the rest of the crowd are muttering. Uh, some say he was a good man, but look at how verse 12 continues. Uh, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. You see, it's not like this group actually wants to kill Christ. No, what they're content to do is to undermine Jesus' reputation. And now, in one sense, this is a lot more honest than the last group, isn't it? Uh, given what Jesus claims about himself, this actually is, I think, a much more plausible alternative. Uh, there is that famous quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Uh, let me read this to you. It, it, maybe it's familiar, maybe not. Uh, this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was or is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Now, this group, I would suggest, make an honest choice. And where do they go? Well, they go with something worse. For them, Jesus is neither Lord nor lunatic. Jesus is a liar. He's leading the people astray. Uh, and it seems to be that this is becoming perhaps one of the most predominant views. Christ, or at least Christianity, is viewed uh, not as some sort of neutral option. No, Christianity today uh, is viewed by many people as dangerous. Christ or Christians lead people astray. Uh, either Christianity is the opiate for the masses, keeping people locked in ignorance, or else Christianity itself is an instrument of repression and oppression, uh, as the quote I read from Christopher Hitchens earlier suggested. Uh, this is the kind of opposition to Christ that is, is uh, much more common now in the post-Christian West. In other parts of the world, people wage literal wars against Christians. Uh, here in the West, people really wage a war of words. 
They seek to tear Christ down. They denigrate him. They belittle him. They suggest he has had a negative influence on society. And so what we find is this. Actually, everyone, everyone, the world hates Jesus Christ. Jesus himself makes this clear. And now what their hatred looks like appears on a kind of spectrum, doesn't it? On the one hand, there are people who want to, on the one end, there are people who want to kill Christ. On the other, there are people who say he is a good man. There's somewhere in between are those who dismiss him, those who, who denigrate him. But we should say, actually, all of this is on the wrong end of the spectrum, isn't it? All of this amounts to rejecting Christ. And this becomes clear in John chapter 7. This hatred begins to fall out like, like that chemical in the science experiment. Uh, and I have to say, I'm sort of sorry to dwell on this because it, it seems to be a point that is so negative, especially on a, on a baptism Sunday. Uh, couldn't we have a more positive message than this? I mean, some of us have brought guests with us to church this morning. And we're going to hear about how all of the world hates Jesus Christ. Well, yes, we are, because it's a point that is incredibly, incredibly important. It is so foundational to Christianity. Uh, this is what Christians believe, that all people hate God. Or to put that in a more familiar way, this is what Christians believe. Christians believe that all of us are sinners because hatred towards God is really what sin is, isn't it? All of us live life our own way without God. Or, or as I heard one person put it recently, given half the chance there isn't one of us who wouldn't kill God if we were able to do so. And why is this so important to understand? Well, until we understand this, we'll never understand the heart of Christianity. Remember what I said at the start? There really are two things that fall out in this text. Two things become clear in John chapter 7. We begin to see the world's hatred towards God, yes. But listen, we also begin to understand God's love for a world that hates him. And really it's this contrast that is so key to understand. I mean, if we're all such good people, if we naturally love God, well, it's no surprise God loves us too, is it? But if the world hates God, if it despises him, if it ultimately crucified his son, we have to ask, how does God feel about such a world? Uh, how does God feel about the real world, uh, the world that we actually live in? Uh, we're going to dwell more on this in the coming weeks. Uh, but for now, let, let's briefly consider this. Uh, let's look at God's love for the world that hates him. Uh, I mean, we get a hint of this in verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. Jesus' brothers ask him to go public. They ask him to, uh, to show himself up at the feast. But Jesus says to them in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And then he goes on to make this claim in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Then he goes on in verse 8, You go up to the feast, but I am not coming up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And my time has not yet come. Uh, my time has not yet fully come. That's the phrase that brackets this statement. Uh, but what time is Jesus talking about? Well, at the very least, it tells us that Jesus clearly does have a mission. Uh, he's telling us that there will be a time when he will be on public display. Uh, but what is that time? Well, well, this is the shock. In John's gospel, there is no question what this time is, what this, this hour means. It is the time of Jesus' crucifixion. This is when Jesus goes public. This is when Jesus Christ is lifted up, when he's displayed for all to see. Not 
uh, so the world can just wonder at him and, and, and glory in his works. Uh, no, this would be a shocking and gruesome spectacle. Uh, you all hate me, Jesus says. I know this, and I know exactly where this hatred will lead. But what you need to know is this. All of this is part of my time. This is my time fully coming. This is my hour, not my hour of defeat, but rather the hour when I triumph, the hour when I complete the task that God has given me. And why does Jesus do that? Well, because he came for people like us, because he came to die in our place. Whether you want to destroy him or dismiss him or domesticate him or denigrate him, Jesus Christ came for you. And he came not to win your approval of him. That's actually what Jesus' brothers want, isn't it? They want Jesus to win over the crowd. And no, Jesus came not to win your approval of him. He came to deal once and for all with God's disapproval of you. In a world that hates God, what do we learn? Do we learn that God hates the world? And no, we learn that God so loved the world, he so loved the world that he gave the world his only son. And so what do we need to do? What's our response? Well, firstly, the response is this. We have to admit to ourselves that we do hate God, don't we? And we need to see in our own hearts the same sinful attitude of the Jews or Jesus' brothers or the crowds that are whispering about Jesus. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to admit that even as Christians, we can so often reject God's rule in our lives and perhaps most often try to domesticate the Lord Jesus. But where do we find hope? Where is the hope? Where is the hope for the world? Where is the hope for a world that hates God? Well, the only hope is the love of a God for a world that hates him. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for your amazing love for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, it is sobering and difficult to hear about ourselves, to hear about what is in our hearts, but we thank you for the good news that accompanies it. Lord, we thank you that it was not when we were righteous or upright that you sent your Son, but that Christ came to die for us while we were still sinners. And so we pray that knowing that fact would fill us with, with awe at your great love for us and that you may, through us, share that love with those around us. Lord, we ask that you'd work in each of our hearts. Help us understand this glorious news. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.